the, uh, this spring, both of my girls were in musicals at their school. And every musical that people create has characters. And they don't just throw random characters in a musical. Every character is part of the story. And one of the things you see in a lot of musicals, perhaps most of the musicals, is where they, they'll also use the crowd as part of the story. You know, if you've, if you've seen many musicals, say something like West Side Story. Imagine West Side Story without all the dancers and the gang scenes and all that kind of stuff, right? Or imagine Oklahoma without those big musical numbers. It, it wouldn't be the same story. Great storytellers, they, they'll take these characters and they weave them in, but they also use the crowd. And that's true not just in musicals, but also in movies, and so here's a couple theatrical posters from some movies from back in the day, like this one, Godzilla, right? They use the crowd in Godzilla. In fact, so much so that it's iconic now to see people running going, ah, looking up at the monster because they want the crowd to feel terror as they're trying to make this person in the rubber suit look scary. So, so there's, they, they try to do that. Or you take a sports movie like Hoosiers and sports movies, they'll often zero in on the crowd. When your team is behind, they zero in the crowd so you can see the tension as everyone's like, oh no, our team is losing. Or when the team wins, they have the crowd shot of everyone cheering so that you get all excited. Or you take an epic like Spartacus. And and in those scenes, they sometimes want the crowd to help inspire you. Like in that movie where one person stands up and says, I'm Spartacus, then another and another and another. And so the crowd is part of the storytelling. In a more recent movie, like Beauty and the Beast, they used the crowd. They used the crowd, the, the remake. And you saw how a villain like Gaston can turn a crowd into a mob by tapping into their fears. Well, this Lent, we've been pressing into the Gospel of John. And the more that we've pressed in, the more that we have seen, John is a storyteller. He's telling a true story, but he's a master storyteller. And he weaves in these, these characters and the crowd so that he can make his point. Near the end of his gospel, John reveals the purpose behind this narrative that he's put together. And you can find it right in John 20. We've looked at this before, but I want to hit this right up front as we get into today. Here is the point, John. He, he says, this is why I did these things. John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in his name. John was intentional about what he included and what he left out. Everything that he included was included for a purpose. From the beginning of the gospel, we see Jesus inviting people, come and see. And for the last five weeks, we've been looking at these characters in John's narrative, and how they responded to Jesus. In week two, we looked at what John revealed through an influential Jewish man who came to Jesus at night. And we looked at what John revealed through a marginalized Samaritan woman who came to the well in the afternoon. The week after that, we looked at what John revealed through the healing of a blind beggar who people said he's blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. And then we looked at what John revealed through the reaction to this healing by self-righteous religious leaders who claim to see. A week after that, we looked at what John revealed through the faith of a woman who had just lost her brother. And we looked at what John also revealed through the responses of those who witnessed the brother being raised from the dead. Every one of these characters was part of a bigger story arc 
They weren't just independent stories. This was more than history. They were part of a story arc, a point that John was trying to make. And through it all, woven into most of these moments, John pauses to focus our attention on the reaction of the crowd. The crowd that at one moment wants to make Jesus king and the crowd that in another moment picks up stones and says, let's kill this Samaritan demon-possessed guy. Well, as we dive in this morning, I want to encourage you to write this down. We have a nice Palm Sunday green insert here for you today. I want to encourage you to write this down. Jesus calls his church, his people, his gathering, Jesus calls his church to be a different kind of crowd. Can I get an amen to that? A different kind of crowd, one that isn't just swayed by the people around us. In the narrative that John developed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the crowd is often blind to what Jesus reveals. And if you have your Bible with you, let's look at the most famous of the crowd scenes in the book of John, the one that we are commemorating today with the kids and their palm branches. So let's turn to John 12. If you have your Bible, starting with verse 9, we're going to get a little bit of a lead into it. I want to let you know if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home free today each and every week. We keep a stack of them there at the table. We encourage you to, to take one. All right, I want to give a little bit of background before we start reading today. The story arc that John has been developing up until this point has been building towards a collision between light and darkness. There's been skirmishes so far, and now we're nearing the battle that is going to decide the war. Jesus had just raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, and the crowd was back on the Jesus bandwagon. And when the religious leaders saw the crowd following Jesus in this way, they felt threatened. There was a group called the Pharisees. They were the influential guardians of holiness, and they felt threatened by how Jesus was challenging their understanding of the law and the form of religion that they said everyone else should follow and conform to. Then there were the chief priests. They were the powerful stewards of the temple mount. They felt threatened by how Jesus was challenging the status quo and what might happen if the occupying Roman force said, we've got to step in. Well, these two religious powerhouses who are normally at odds with one another, they aligned for the purpose of destroying the man who they believed to be their common enemy. And they realized if we're going to take Jesus out, We've got to get the crowd on our side. That's how we do it. We get the crowd on our side. So that's where we pick up today. John chapter 12, starting with verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So this comes right before this, what's called the triumphal entry. This comes right before the whole thing with the palms that we're going to look at now. And, and what is about to happen confirms the worst fears of the Pharisees and the chief priests. Because they're like, see what's happening here. The crowd is uniting around Jesus. So then we pick up with verse Uh, 12 through 13, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even what? The king of Israel. They're calling him the king of Israel. Okay, I I tried to um, come up with an illustration to, to try to 
to, to describe what's happening here. And because I'm a child of the 80s, my mind went to an 80s movie called Red Dawn. Red Dawn. Now, I'm sure none of you have seen it because when it came out in 1984, it set a new Guinness World Record for violent acts per hour. It was something like two and a half per minute or something like that. So I'm sure none of you have seen it, but I, I did back in the day. I'm not recommending it for family movie night. It's just an illustration. All right. So it's kind of like that movie Red Dawn. In the movie, Russians invaded Colorado. And there was a group of teenagers. They called themselves the Wolverines. And they formed this little group and they fought back. And what happened on the first Palm Sunday, it's kind of like this. Patrick Swayze played their leader. And it's kind of like if, if Patrick Swayze was coming into that small Colorado town and he was followed by Charlie Sheen and C. Thomas Howell and Jennifer Grey and the rest of the Wolverines. And as they were riding into town, it's like this. It's, it's as if the people grabbed their American flags and they started shouting, USA, USA, God was with us, God with us. It's, that, it's like that because palm branches were the national symbol for the Jewish people. And shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, is, there, there is no direct English translation. It is as if a country like USA is saying, USA, God's with us. USA, God's with us. That's what it was like. So no wonder the Pharisees, the chief priests, the Romans were like, whoa, the crowd is with him. We got to do something about this. Well, on Friday, we're going to look at the example of a disciple of Jesus named Peter. Oh, I hope you can make it on Friday. And how in the very next chapter, Peter says this. He says, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And that makes total sense. Because Jesus, it was, as he's coming in, he's getting all these shouts. Peter's like, I'm with him. You know, I would lay down my life for him. That is easy to say, isn't it, when the crowd is with you. We see what happens when Peter had to stand alone, don't we? Against a small crowd. We see where he really was at. It's one thing to say, I'm with Jesus. When the crowd is with you, it's another when the crowd is not with you. Let's go back to our text, John 12, verse 17. The crowd that had been with Jesus when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that Jesus had done this sign. That jumped out at me right there. They went out to meet Jesus because, because they had heard that he had done this miracle. The crowd had seen a sign of Jesus raising a man from the dead. So they grabbed their palm branches and they started shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the Pharisees saw that and they said this, verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, look, the world has gone after him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they set out, we got to flip the crowd. We've got to flip the crowd. And those of you who know the story, you know that they were successful in flipping the crowd. And when you think back to the story that, that John has now revealed up to this point, you realize just how successful they were. Because back in John 6, the crowd witnessed a miracle as more than 5,000 people were fed. And in that moment, does anyone know what they were going to do with Jesus? They were going to make him their king by force if they needed to. Because they'd seen this miracle. They had been fed. Let's make him our king. And then in John 11, the crowd witnessed another miracle. The one we were just reading about. Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. And right here in John 12, as we've been reading, the crowd wants to make Jesus their what? Their king. Let me say this. 
it is not hard to flip a crowd that's looking for a savior who conforms to their expectations. Because all you got to do is get a better king. That's all you got to do. In less than a week, the Pharisees and the chief priests turned the crowd against Jesus to the point where even the Roman governor Pilate went against his own judgment and his wife's dreams and he did so out of fear, out of this new mob that was now aligned with the chief priests and the Pharisees. Look at what the crowd was saying when Jesus was placed on trial less than a week later. Pilate says to the crowd, picking up, this is John 19, verse 15. Pilate said to the crowd, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king, but Caesar. No one in history is better at revealing what is really in a person's heart than Jesus of Nazareth. If there is, let's talk afterwards because I've never seen it. I've never seen anyone who is better at at reading what's really going on here. Because here's a situation. It looks like the crowd gets it and they didn't. Jesus knows how to reveal what's really in our hearts. And that begs the question, do you know who your true king is? Because it might not be who you would say it is. You might say, I'm willing, I would lay down my life for Christ. Is that what our life reflects? And, and may I present to you that God loves you enough to put you in situations that are going to reveal the truth. When there is a threat that comes to your life that will cause you to, to, to be able to be honest. And often that moment is a crowd-related thing where God will care enough about you to put you in a situation where the crowd is going this way and you know the right thing to do is to go this way. And those are the moments often where we start to see really who our king is, our idol is in those situations. All right, let's go back to chapter 12 and we're going to find some very sad commentary here. Chapter 12 verses 42 through 43 say this, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus, but out of fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Woe to the people whose leaders seek applause from the crowd more than they seek a clear conscience or the applause of heaven. I'm going to read that again. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say amen to this. Woe to the people whose leaders seek applause from the crowd more than they seek a clear conscience or the applause of heaven. Can I get an amen to that? Woe to the nation. Woe to the people. Okay, let's turn a corner to application because the point of what we're reading here is not to say, oh, here's something interesting that happened in history. John's point in writing is that we may have life. And there is timeless content here about crowds and the role they play in our life, and the importance that they have in our life. When masses become a mob, when groups of people are fueled by fear or hatred or jealousy, crowds of normal people are capable of breathtaking levels of blindness, and they become capable of doing dark, dark things. History has proven this time and time and time again. It is very very hard to think independently when we feel pressured to go along. Which is exactly why 
Jesus is calling us to be a different kind of crowd. Because crowds are powerful and that power can be harnessed for good. That power can be harnessed for evil. The best book I've ever read in my life on change is this one. It was written on the science of change. It's called Influencer. If you're a person who desires to change, if you're a person who is in a position where you'd like to see change in others, best book I've ever read on change. I want to read a small section from this book. Uh, and this is speaking specifically to the, the power that social networks have around us says this, the authors say this, no source of influence is more powerful and accessible than the persuasive power of the people who make up our social networks. None. The ridicule and praise, acceptance and rejection, approval and disapproval of our fellow beings can do more to assist or destroy our change efforts than almost any other source. A raised eyebrow, a curled lip, or a small shake of the head can wield more influence than the sum total of all the world's thundering speeches. Smart influencers appreciate the amazing power humans hold over one another. And instead of denying it and lamenting it or attacking it, they embrace it and enlist it. They use the power of social influence to support change by ensuring that the right people provide encouragement, coaching, and even accountability during crucial moments. We've seen people in the past that have used this power for all kinds of horrible purposes. This can also be harnessed for good. I had to laugh a little bit at the title of this book because it says it's the new science of leading change. There is nothing new there, is there? Nothing new there. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Here's why the crowd plays such a powerful role in our lives. We were created for community. I bet there's some of you, you knew what that blank was going to be before I even told you, right? We were created for community. Before the word became flesh, he existed in perfect community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit continually honor one another. And they always act in ways that are consistent with light and truth and wisdom and justice and love. This is the kind of community that we long for most. We were created for this kind of community. And this is the kind of community that Christ invites us into when he says, come and see, come and see. If we go back to our text, let's think where we left off. We left off as Jesus comes riding into town and they're saying, you're our king. God with us, save us now, right? They're they're cheering. So what we're going to look at here at verse 23, this is right after that happens. I mean, we're talking... The donkey is still sweaty. We're talking the little boys are still poking their sisters with the palm branches, right? This is that close to the event. Most people in that situation, we would be setting our eyes if we were Jesus. They're calling us king. We're setting our eyes on Pilate's corner office, right? That's what we're thinking. Jesus, though, he is not swayed by what he sees in the crowd. Take a look at this. John chapter 12, going back to where we left off, verse 23. Jesus answered them, the hour has come. For the son of man to be glorified. And again, most of our minds glorified. That is glorified. They're calling us their king. But look what he says next. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him, will honor her. Jesus is not pulled into the vortex of blindness that is pulling others in. Jesus knows what he must do in this moment. And you look back in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says to Mary, my time has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, we read Jesus wasn't arrested because, quote, his time had not come. Now the time has come. The defining moment that all of history had been moving towards had come. And in the defining moment of his life, as it was drawing near, again, the the time that all history had pointed towards, N.T. Wright writes this of that moment, Jesus will go forward to meet that moment. He won't back down from it. He won't be deceived by the crowds. This is the example Jesus set. He knows that the crowd won't stand with him. And he, as he stands before his accusers, but he also knows this. When he stands before the crowd, he won't stand alone. Look what he says. John 12, 27 through 30. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I'll glorify it again. The crowd that stood there heard it, and and they thought that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. That voice is for our sake. That voice that Jesus heard, that's for our sake. I want to encourage you to listen for it. When you face your defining moments... Because most of the defining moments of our lives are going to be moments when we feel like we're standing alone. When everyone else is saying, come on, everybody sees things this way. Or when the crowd picks up stones and they're about to throw the stones at someone who is no less a sinner than they are. And we have to make a decision. Am I going to go in with these stones or not? In those moments, listen for the voice that matters most. The voice that says, when we do what's right, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Our highest highs, our lowest lows are usually community related. It is one thing to have a bad workout. It is a total different thing to have a bad game, isn't it? It is one thing to be in your room practicing your instrument and you hit a wrong note. It is another thing to be on a stage and hit that wrong note. There is nothing quite like the feeling you get when your team wins or when you receive a standing ovation or when your peers elect you to be their president or captain or leader or when you make the big save and keep that undefeated season, no goals against, right, Jessica? There's nothing quite like that feeling. And there's nothing also quite like the feeling you get when the crowd is laughing at you or when the crowd turns on you or when the crowd ignores you altogether. That's the worst feeling there is. I mentioned at the top of this talk that my daughters were each in musicals this spring, and Emma was in a play called Seussical. And the last thing I expected going to a movie based on the works of Dr. Seuss was to get choked up. And here's a scene where there's a kid dressed as an elephant, and he's singing to a little pink puffball. 
And I'm wiping tears from my eyes. Because the song he was singing was called Alone in the Universe. And after asking, what's wrong with me? I realized that is the deepest fear of every human. To be alone. And in the hardest counseling sessions I've ever had to do with people, it's when there's a feeling of being alone and having lost a loved one or or feeling like you're alone. In those moments when standing alone is the right thing to do, remember this. There's a place to write this in your notes. Christ sees you through the crowd. Do you see him? Christ sees you through the crowd. Does he see the crowd? Yep. And he sees every individual in that crowd. Do you see him? You are not a face in the crowd to Jesus of Nazareth. Can I get an amen to that? Your Savior sees you just as he could see Nicodemus's questions came from a sincere place, not a cynical place. He could see that the woman at the well and the people in her village, they needed more than a jar of water. He could see that the blind man wasn't blind because he sinned. He knew where to find Mary and Martha when they cried out for help. You are not alone. He sees you. Do you see And do you see him with clear eyes? And are you part of a community who sees him too? There's a place to write this in your notes. What kind of community are you seeking? Are you seeking? This summer as a church, we've been asking people to say, let us know what are the most important topics we could possibly be teaching on. And we, more than any other topic, number one, by far, anxiety. Anxiety. Let me just give you a, a quick heads up. The, one of the most important things you can do if you want to bring anxiety level down, have your inner circle be people that you've chosen well. Chosen well. What kind of community are you seeking? The call to follow Christ, you need to hear this. The call to follow Christ is not a call to rugged individualism. It's not a call to say, um, your whole purpose in life is to always be that person standing alone. That's not it. Sometimes you have to. But the call is to find a community of people who are standing alone together. That's the last, set, uh, one of the last set of blanks here we got. Oh, you know what? I'm jumping way ahead. Let me come to that part in a point, in a, in a little second here. I got to say this though first, all right? Before, let's talk. There's a couple key points. This is why I write things down. This is so important. So one of the things we've said so many times in this church is, is, is we are they. We are they. And we long to be a part of a community, right? That, that is, is, is one that is a community of truth seekers. A community that encourages questions and questioning. A community where it's safe to question the beliefs of the crowd, even on controversial, emotionally charged topics, without fear. Without fear that you're going to be attacked or shouted down or shunned. And again, one of the things that we say around here is, we are they. This kind of community is only possible if we're all committed to it. That's why I want to come back and make sure we do write this down, this next one. What kind of community are you contributing to? Because we can't have that kind of community unless we're all contributing to it. Will you contribute to being a person who asks your question, even if everyone else appears to know the answers? And will you commit to being a person who listens to question askers? 
without attacking them or questioning their character or shouting them down? Will you commit to being a person who is more concerned about knowing the truth than maintaining the status quo? Here's another thing that I'm glad I didn't skip. Those with eyes to see are willing to stand alone if they must. And maybe I should have had the if they must in bold or the fill-in. Those with eyes to see are willing to stand alone if they must. In the content that John intentionally includes in his gospel, he intentionally highlights how having eyes that see will often necessitate that we stand alone in a crowd. Jesus helped Nicodemus see, and he realized that he could no longer deny the truth. And Jesus helped the woman at the well see, and she took the courageous step to tell others about the man that was different than anyone she'd ever met. And Jesus helped the blind man to see, and he could not soften his story by making it more socially acceptable. When you consider the courage that each of these people had when they stood virtually alone, now we come back to the thing that I was jumping ahead to because it's so good, right? And it's this, the last villain for today. Imagine the power of a community made up of individuals who are willing to stand alone while standing together. And I had a person that knows a lot more about English than me fact check. Is that, a, is that grammatically correct? And I hear it is. But the one right before it or two before it isn't. So there's that. Here's what I'm getting at with this last one. If just one truth seeker can inspire others, imagine the power if you had individuals who are willing to stand alone encouraging each other to stand. Think about that. Imagine if you stood alone and looked around or you thought you were standing alone and you realized others were standing with you. As we bring today's teaching to a close, I want to share a true story. And you can look this one up if you want. You can go to YouTube and look up Flaming Tomb on Easter Sunday. Flaming Tomb on Easter Sunday. A few years ago, a church was putting on a big Easter show. Big Easter show. And this was it. This was time for the big climactic scene where Jesus was going to burst forth from the tomb. So they get the big soloist and he's singing with the spotlight on him. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen from the grave. And so he's singing this. It's the dramatic part. And the tomb catches on fire. The tomb starts to ignite in flames and everyone on stage can see it. And they just keep going on with the show. <laughs> Soloist keeps singing. He is risen. Choir doesn't even budge. Except their eyes got a lot bigger, I bet, if you could zoom in. They're just standing there with their, their thing. The centurion just stays in character as this tomb is catching on fire. Jesus comes out and he just kind of does the, the Jesus praise arms thing and just starts walking back and forth with a really nervous pace. And so... <laughs> The, the, all the people on stage, the people putting on the show, they just, the show must go on. And finally some dude in the crowd says, I can't handle this. And he rushes the stage. He grabs the flaming door and you see him run off with the flaming door. And now the whole tomb is engulfed in flames and more people start coming up from the crowd and they extinguish the fire as the soloist keeps singing. <laughs> Look it up. Flaming tomb on Easter Sunday. May we never be a church where the show must go on. If we're on fire, 
<laughs> Someone shout fire. <laughs> Not just literally, but in other situations as well. And as the worship band comes, comes, let me just put this in as practical terms as I can. We want to be a church that if something's on fire, something is not right, let's call it out. Let's not just go, well, no one else is doing anything. Jesus is still up there with his praise arms, so, you know. If we start having a budget as a church, and our budget, if we start shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, the amount that we are investing in the poor and the marginalized, call that out, call that out. If we start looking at our ministry to young people and we start noticing there's no kids around here and we're just growing old together, that is a, we are on fire situation. And let me also say this. We, we have so many kids around here. We have a responsibility. If we just grow a bigger and bigger crowd of kids and we're just entertaining them, and they are not becoming more like Jesus, if we're not discipling them, if we're not equipping them so that we hand the keys off to this thing, someone raise your hand and say, what are we doing? You know? If, if, if we as a congregation, overall congregation, we just keep getting bigger and bigger, we just have these bigger and bigger crowds, but we don't look different than our culture in the right ways, someone yell fire. Because we are not going the direction that Jesus taught us. One of the conversations that we've already begun as, as church leaders is what would God have us do to truly reach more people? Not to do a better job than another church and just get transfers, but what would God have us to do to truly reach people who aren't interested in Christianity? If this is a church where no one is converting to Christ, let's raise our hands and go, what's going on? And, and let me say this, if our church ever starts to align so closely with a movement or a political party that we are not asking hard questions about, are we really following Christ? And we're not calling out things? Someone raise your hand and say, are we just following Pharisees? Are we just following the chief priests? And also uh, related to that, if we ever get to a point where we are just constantly throwing stones on our social media, in our conversations, instead of praying for our leaders, as the Bible says, of respecting authorities, raise your hand too. If we're just a bunch of cynics, that's not God-honoring. So let me pray. And then the, the worship band has an awesome song. Really listen to these words or sing these words because they'll seal everything we've talked about today. Father, we pray that you give us eyes to see. Help us to be a congregation filled with each individual committed to you and to seeking truth. Help us to not be afraid of, of, of a status quo that gets threatened if that status quo needs to change. Help us to, to be seeking, knocking, asking, becoming more like you, Jesus. There was never anyone who modeled, who knew, who lived this life. Help us respond to your invitation to enter into this kind of life together. In Jesus' name, amen.